Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. This case is why we lock our doors at night. Attacked all over California. The community was taken hostage. Brutal homicides. One of the most prolific serial killers in the history of this state, if not in this nation. campaign to help identify the Golden State Killer. 51 attacks. 12 murders. That we know of. In the state of California. All committed between 1976 and 1986. And then... He all but vanished until he called at least one victim years later. This is the terrifying true story of the serial killer first known in Sacramento as the East Area Rapist. Then, after he made his way south to Santa Barbara, Ventura, and Orange County, he became known as the original Night Stalker. Today, he carries the moniker, the Golden State Killer. I'm Joe Finciun. And I'm Biagio Messina, and we are the producers behind the five-part HLN documentary series, Unmasking a Killer, that chronicles and investigates the many aspects of this unsolved case in the hopes of capturing one of the most frightening and prolific criminals in our nation's history a criminal who left his DNA at multiple crime scenes. DNA that law enforcement believes will be his undoing. The number of sexual assaults and murders he committed is staggering. And the 40-year search to discover his identity and bring him to justice has generated countless leads, uh, witnesses, theories, many of which we explore in our HLN documentary series. But obviously, this case is expansive, and we couldn't cover everything in the documentary alone. And that's why we are flattered and thrilled that CNN gave us the opportunity to launch the Unmasking a Killer Companion podcast, so we can delve deeper into this series, into the offender's MO and profile, the clues generated by his individual crimes, and even new leads and details discovered in recent years. We will be sharing new interviews and never-before-released documentary soundbites to offer a more detailed look at this case and this offender, and ultimately, hopefully, bring him to justice. Now, the biggest break so far in this case happened when the Northern California sexual assault spree attributed to the East Area Rapist was definitively connected with the Southern California murder spree attributed to the original Night Stalker. Same guy. And as mentioned before, it was all about DNA. 
Paul Holes, Contra Costa County District Attorney Investigator, who was featured in part one of the documentary, which just premiered last night on HLN, and who will also be featured in episode two of this podcast next week, was instrumental in establishing this link. Uh, In this previously unreleased clip from our original Unmasking a Killer documentary interview, Paul explains how he made the connection. Well, I first became interested when I was looking through an old file drawer in a library at the Contra Costa County Sheriff's Office, and literally it was just manila envelopes of case files with a red EAR labeled on them. And initially it just kind of drew my attention to it. I didn't know what it was. I opened up the cases and started reading them, and I realized, oh, it looks like a series of rapes. But that's all I could tell at that point in time. And that was in 1991 when I first ran across those file folders. It wasn't until I was on a uh, plane flight with my former chief, John Murdoch, and we got talking and I asked him about those files that were in the library. And he said, oh, that's the East Area Rapist case. And he was on the original Contra Costa County East Area Rapist Task Force. So he proceeded to tell me about that series And the laboratory at the time was in the process of getting DNA technology, the very, very first DNA technology being used. And so I came away from that conversation thinking, I'm going to see if I can solve this series of rapes using DNA. And so that was started in 1994. I'm going down to the sheriff's property room and finding the rape kits that have been collected from the victims. And fortunately, the sheriff's office still had three of the rape kits from three different cases. So I was able to take those kits and then do the DNA analysis on them. And it was a DNA technology that you know predates the modern DNA technology. But that DNA was the same across the three cases. The semen that was located in each of the rape victims' kits was from the same DNA type. So that showed me that the original investigators who had made the links based on the MO of the offender, well, they were correct. They are looking for the same guy. So what I did then is I was looking through the case files and I saw an individual who was very active with the original investigation, Larry Crompton, saw his name and he was a sheriff's lieutenant. So I called Larry Crompton up and I asked him, hey, I've got this DNA technology. Who are your top suspects? I know we can't prosecute this case, but it'd be kind of interesting to see who this guy was. And at that point, Larry Crompton said, hey, we didn't really have a real prime suspect at the time, but we thought he possibly went down to Santa Barbara and may have even killed somebody down there. So that was my first discussion with Larry Crompton that led me to go, I need to call Southern California. And this is 1997 when that occurred. So I called up Santa Barbara and I talked with an investigator there and was saying, hey, I'm looking into this East Area Rapist series. Do you have any cases that are possibly similar to what we've got up here? And he said, no, you know, we, we really don't have anything that's similar, but I've heard Irvine has DNA on a couple of their cases that came from you know, the same offender and their attacks, you might want to call up Irvine. So that's what I did. As I called up Irvine PD, I spoke with the detective there, and he said, yeah, we've got two cases. The DNA is showing the same guy killed these two females. Orange County Sheriff's Office did the lab. They tell me, you probably need to talk to Mary Hong. So I called Mary Hong up. We got talking, and I had my DNA profile. She had her DNA profile, but two different technologies. So we couldn't do a comparison except for one area of the DNA. 
and that was the same, but it wasn't very strong. You know, sort of like getting an ABO type. This guy's a type A, this guy's a type A, so well, can't eliminate, but it really just could be coincidental. So at that point, I was like, well, we will call you back once we get caught up, because Orange County was further ahead than Contra Costa in terms of their DNA technology. And that's what happened, but it took four years for us to get caught up. In 2001, Contra Costa County had the new STR technology. We had that validated. We were starting to go through and do cases using that technology. So I ended up having a DNA analyst assigned saying, I want this DNA, the STR technology, done on the East Area Rapist cases. Let's get a fresh profile. And so the DNA analyst did that. He got a full STR profile. All three cases were still the same guy in Contra Costa County. And I told him, call up Mary Hong at Orange County and see if those cases that I called her four years ago, back in 1997, see if they are the same guy. So the DNA analyst called up Mary and they literally read the profile to each other over the phone. And at that point, that's when we knew that the East Area Rapist up in Northern California was the same guy that Southern California knew as the original Night Stalker. Paul will be here next week to give us a more detailed look at this offender's pattern of behavior and how he adapted his attacks and escapes as law enforcement learned more about him and his mode of operation. And today, we've got an exclusive interview with Detective Sergeant Ken Clark of the Sacramento Sheriff's Department, who was unavailable to sit for the documentary, but was able to join us for this podcast. But before we talk to Ken, we're welcoming Todd Lindsay, the supervising producer of the HLN Unmasking a Killer documentary series, and the person who brought this extraordinary case to our attention. He's been working with law enforcement for years, trying to identify and bring the Golden State Killer to justice. He'll share some of what he uncovered in his own investigation and what he hopes comes from the documentary. Todd's also indirectly responsible for the offender's moniker, the Golden State Killer, and he'll explain that too. All right, let's be clear. None of us would be here making this TV series or this podcast without Todd Lindsay, one of the best true crime producers out there. We've worked with Todd for many years on many different projects, but when he told us about a case that had him transfixed for close to a decade, the case of the Golden State Killer, we were hooked. Todd, hello, welcome. Can you believe we're here? We made it. It's unbelievable. Right? Yes, definitely, and and thank you so much for that kind intro. (laughs) Well, um, I got to tell you, you know, it's amazing, the case, your commitment to it. My question for you is, when did you first come across this case? Well, uh, I used to write story ideas for E! Investigates and True Hollywood Story. True Hollywood Story, obviously, the celebrity type of stories. Uh, But E! Investigates were the true crime-based stories. So I was always researching uh, different crimes online and came across this website about the East Area Rapist original Night Stalker case, which I had really never heard of. And uh, you discovered something, right? That was uh, sort of... stage here. It was stage. late at night. So I was home alone uh, late at night. It's probably about 11 o'clock at night. Uh, I'm reading this website 
and it has a little thing that says, uh, click on this, and you can hear the actual voice of the East Area Rapist original Night Stalker. I mean, I don't know what I was thinking. I guess I assumed it was going to be like, hey, John, you know, <laughs> I mean, I'm not sure what he was going to say. Um, so I clicked on it. Uh, my speakers were turned probably w- way up because I usually listen to music through them. And the voice that came through scared the crap out of me. the heavy breathing and then clearly somebody talking through clenched teeth saying I'm going to kill you over and over again so my immediate thought was does he know that I'm listening to this (laughs) (laughs) I mean is he outside waiting for somebody to click on this and then when you do he comes in and gets you obviously that was not the case but uh, I listened to it over and over again that night and just I was just hooked on the case. Well, you know, an interesting point, you know, it literally terrified you. It literally terrified us the first time we heard it. Yes. I can't imagine being the person receiving that call in the first place. After have been assaulted. Yeah. I mean, because yeah. he would assault and then call later. Call so it's 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 reliving that entire terror. And clearly he gets a thrill out of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, clearly that's his thing to not only obviously inflict a lot of uh, emotional distress and and fear during the sexual assault, but for months afterwards, and as we know, in some cases, years afterwards. Um, So he obviously gets a big thrill out of that, and that's part of his M.O. So if he's listening, he probably is getting a big thrill out of you having been scared that night. Yeah, I guess. (laughs) I'm not his demographic, I don't think, but... uh, I'm sure he's half terrified, half thrilled that he's gotten this much attention in the recent years. Um, One of the stories surrounding this case, and there's lots of rumors and theories, obviously, uh, in a 40-year-old case, but one of them is the one of the three-toed German shepherd. (laughs) Um, Apparently, at the Manning-Offerman double murder in Goleta in 1979, dog prints were found at the crime scene. Dog prints rumored to belong to a very rare three-toed German shepherd. Todd, you spent a lot of time looking into this. What did you end up finding? Uh, it's really hard to say, but it, it seems like that was um, a dead end. Um, I mean, that's the only way I can really say it. Um, they looked into it quite a bit. When I say they, the Santa Barbara authorities that investigated this case, and they really could find nothing to point in any direction. Like, I, I don't know if they ever even came upon a three-toed German Shepherd. Um, there was some confusion as to whether the prince actually showed three toes. And I guess it is. it does happen in some breeds of German Shepherds. It's not out of the realm of possibility. It, it just, it, there was never a good lead from that clue. And whether that was an actual clue or not is also um, a little hazy. 
So um, it's just one of the many dead ends in this case. Yeah. Which, and I think this is so fascinating because just that one clue, there were so many investigative hours spent on this yes. by authorities. Um, and again, it's so tiny, but there's been so many resources dedicated, which is really phenomenal. Well, and you don't have much to go on. So you you have to investigate every little thing and you and you have to, um, you know, put a lot of hours into each little clue, especially, again, when you don't have much to go on. Uh, speaking of spending a lot of hours on this, um, you have, as part of producing the series, you made a lot of phone calls, including tracking down neighbors who lived in the neighborhoods of these murders. And you stumbled on quite a few new finds related to the Harrington murders, which we passed on to the authorities. And Erica Hutchcraft at the Orange County District Attorney's Office uh, subsequently investigated and connected them to the Golden State Killer spree. We have a web extra that is going to be released with part two of the series. But can you give us a little sneak peek as to what you found? Well, you know, the Dana Point crime, the the murders of the Harringtons, always kind of stuck out as being a weird anomaly in this case, because in all of the other neighborhoods that uh, the Golden State Killer was active in, there was um, multiple break-ins, uh, there was activity leading up to the crime or crimes, and the Dana Point case didn't seem to have any of that. So, yeah, after talking to the neighbors, and there were still people that live on that street now that lived there during the murders, um, it turns out there was quite a bit of activity. And one of the big things was a stolen bike, which we know our guy loved to steal bikes and use them in his crimes. And then if he had to leave it behind, you couldn't connect it to him. And a bike was stolen from their street and later found in uh, San Juan Capistrano near some... Um, Cheap motels is how it's been described. Which is not too far from Dana Point. It's about 10 minutes. Yep. So very close. And there were several other things that pointed to these break-ins being our guy. Yeah, that kind of burglary cluster stuff that you exactly. see in the other cases was, was missing. But you also came across a story of uh, one of the neighbors who potentially saw him. Yes. She didn't get a great look at his face, but... The story she told is so scary. Is very scary, and I don't think she really understands how close she came to possibly so from, being killed. From what I understand, she's in bed at night. Her husband's next to her. She, yes, the dog starts barking. She hears. Uh, he was actually growling, is how she describes it, down the hallway from her bed, from her bedroom. Uh, she attempted to wake up her husband. Uh, she told me her husband told her, we live in a gated community, <laughs> which they did. Don't worry about it. And she could still hear the dog growling. So she got up out of bed and walked down the hallway. At the end of the hallway is a sunken living room to her left. And she said it was pitch black and she couldn't see anything in the living room. The dog is standing at the step to the living room and growling at something clearly in the living room. She looks to her right. There's a sliding glass door that leads to the backyard. That is open. And she remembers that the lock on that sliding glass door was broken. So very smartly, I mean, she turns around immediately, heads back to the bedroom, uh, wakes her husband up, and she looks out the window of her bedroom. The bedroom window faces the front of the house. Uh, when she looks out, she sees a man run from her backyard, from her side gate, out into the street and down in the direction of where the Harringtons lived. And she described him um, as dressed in dark clothing. Uh, she couldn't see his face. She thought he had dirty blonde, stringy hair, 
on the longer side. And that was the best description she could give. And that was about a week before the Harringtons are murdered down the street. So there's no doubt in my mind it was our guy. Wow. You know, um, another very interesting fact about this case actually is that you were the one who told Michelle McNamara about it in the first place. And she, she obviously went on to coin the, the name the Golden State Killer, which was a much better moniker than uh, Ear or Ons or Ear Ons or, you know, which was all kind of unfortunate branding and probably part of the reason nobody knows who this guy is. Definitely. uh, Yes. uh, The name didn't lend itself to a headline. (laughs) Right. So tell us about, you know, how you connected with her and and what that spawned. It's, it's, you know, it's just one of those weird stories. Uh, Like I said, I used to, I was working at EE and I was writing true crime write-ups to pitch to the network. And there was this great website. I think it was called Cold Case Diaries that had cases that I like, uh, unsolved and unpublicized, and some very fascinating cases on there. And whoever, you know, when I'm reading this, I'm thinking, oh, this person's a really good writer. Um, They lay out the cases really well. And so I was kind of finding ideas for true crime stories to produce. And so one day I thought I would email the webmaster because this person didn't have a name on their website, so I had no idea who it was. And I just said, you know, you're a great writer, love the stories on the website. You should look into the original Night Stalker case. You would probably find it fascinating. And I believe that's all I said. And I put my name on it. And then a couple of weeks after I sent that email, I get a call. And it's Michelle McNamara. And she says, "I'm that's my website. Uh, I got your email. And I think the first thing she said after that was, why haven't I heard about this case? Yep. And I can't tell you how many people have said that to me over the years. And I tell them, really, nobody's heard about this case, at least at that time. So uh, we had lunch in L.A. I found out that she lived in Los Angeles and was married to the comedian Pat Oswalt, and that she was, uh, she's obviously a very good crime writer. And um, she was fascinated with it. So I just, I gave her everybody I had ever spoken to about the case and discussed the case with her and uh, at length over a long lunch and then she was off like a rocket. Yeah, and, and that, hasn't that put that case down until, you know, she just... Until uh, her untimely death, yes. Um, and very sad, and obviously she became obsessed with it. Well, um, I know you, we were, we started working on this because we even reached out to her about mm-hmm. doing an interview, and she was like, I am so swamped with right. the book. She said, I'm very swamped with the book. I've gotten several offers to do similar things. Um, she thanked me again for being so generous with her, my contacts and with the details of the case, which my, I mean, I, I kind of find it funny when they say, you know, you're generous. It's not my case. These are people who worked the case. I've just reached out and contacted them. Um, I just wanted it to get a lot more publicity because I'd like to see it solved, obviously. Right. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Um, so you've been thinking about the Golden State Killer for over a decade. You wanted this to be the definitive series on the subject. What is the one thing you want people to walk away with after watching this? I'd like for them to think that um, we looked at every single aspect of the case exhaustively, uh, which I believe we did. They'll see people that they've heard about but have never heard from if they know the case. If they don't know the case at all, I think they'll find this story absolutely engrossing and uh, and fascinating. But... uh, I hope they come away with an urgency to want to see this case solved. That's the overall message is we want to solve this. And it's solvable. 
And there's it a is. good chance he's still alive. But even if he has passed away, we need to know who this was for the victims, uh, just for for the state of California, for justice. I mean, we have to know who this was. You, we cannot allow somebody like this to run rampant for over a decade in our state, killing at random. You just you can't allow that. You have to show other people of his kind, we will hunt you down and we will not stop till we find you. Well, Todd, I got to tell you, it continues to be an absolute pleasure to work with you on this. Uh, you know, I know that we are going to continue these conversations for years to come and, you know, hopefully, you know, eventually uh, we, we see the end to this. Yeah, hopefully we get to make a special that identifies the Golden State Killer. Nothing would make us happier to of have course. law enforcement finally unmask this man. And personally, can't wait to pop a bottle of bubbly with you when it happens. That would be amazing. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Todd. Todd Lindsay isn't the only one who thinks the case of the Golden State Killer is solvable. Detective Sergeant Ken Clark of the Sacramento Sheriff's Department does too. He's fully vested in this case and has been working on it for years. He shares his knowledge about the killer and the crimes coming up. Joining us now is Ken Clark, Detective Sergeant with the Sacramento Sheriff's Department. He's been working this case, investigating every angle for 12 years. Uh, Ken, thank you so much for being here with us today. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. Good to be here. All right. So let's let's dive right in. You know, part one of our series really provided an overview of the case. Now, when you speak about the series of burglaries, rapes, and murders, how do you summarize the reign of GSK? Well, you know, it's tough to tell exactly when he started, but it looks like it would have been sometime likely in the early 70s here in uh, uh, Sacramento. The first kind of accepted case of the East Area Rapist series was June 18th of 1976. Uh, he committed a sexual assault in the Rancho Cordova area of Sacramento, which at the time was a uh, small, pretty quiet part of town and continued attacking through approximately 30 attacks. Uh, all were sexual assaults uh, of females initially and then couples at the later part of the series. In this series, it wasn't until victim number five that the connection was made that this was kind of a serial rapist case and Sacramento had a serial rapist on their hand. We often get asked why it took until attack number five for that connection to happen. Can you shed light on that? You know, I obviously wasn't around back then. I was uh, eight years old when all that was going on. But <laughs> what I what I can tell you is that having talked to some of the investigators, it uh, they had a couple of other pretty good sized series operating at the time, and because these strikes were happening on different uh, parts of or different sides of the river, there were different investigative teams that were looking into some of the early strikes, and it took uh, a little while before they were able to see that there was a connection. Right. And so basically, you know, as he starts raping, the attacks are numbered for law enforcement purposes. But we often forget that while these are happening, the offender also keeps burglarizing, correct? Yes, that's correct. Interestingly, he would burglarize a neighborhood and not strike for potentially weeks after doing a, a string of burglaries and prowls and peeps. And then when a neighborhood would go hot with burglaries, you would then have a rape in another area that he had already scouted or potentially uh, pre-prowled and identified uh, victims. So he was moving hunting grounds 
constantly with sexual assaults not necessarily being in a place where he was actively committing some of the pre-sexual assault behaviors that we saw uh, back then. But then there were also times where he would be more opportunistic and you would see uh, a night where some burglaries would occur and there was activity in a neighborhood in the preceding days and then he would strike. So uh, he tended to, to be somewhat prepared for those type of uh, situations if they presented themselves, but we we believe most of the victims were selected by just using the burglaries and prowls to identify potential targets for later sexual assaults. That also helps explain the terror where, you know, he's doing the burglaries in one neighborhood and sexually assaulting in another neighborhood. And if your house gets burglarized, you don't know, am I next? How soon can he come back? That must have been part of that that terror that was consuming the community and also very frustrating for law enforcement. Oh, for sure. I've, I have friends that lived in those neighborhoods during that time period, and there was a lot of uh, you know countermeasures taken to try and prevent him from getting into homes. And, that, of course, gun sales went way up during that time period, and uh, burglar alarms began to be installed. Uh, people started locking their doors and... Uh, it, it was definitely a terrifying time. And, you know, he wasn't the only offender operating them. We had some other uh, individuals that were uh, also doing uh, some pretty horrible things. Uh, Gerald Gallegos uh, comes to mind and Richard Chase, the vampire killer. They were all operating in that same time period. So it was definitely a wake up call from Sacramento that uh, it's, it was no longer, you know, small town USA here. Something that didn't make it into the show, but was very fascinating to me was that um, in order to clear a suspect, and we got this story from Richard Shelby and Carol Daly, is that sheriff's deputies would would sit on a suspect, watch his house, and just wait until another attack happened, and then they could clear the suspect because he had been under surveillance and he couldn't have possibly been across town. Obviously, this was before cell phones and GPS tracking, but that must have put an enormous amount of strain on the resources available to law enforcement. Were there other ways that the law enforcement back then uh, worked this case that stood out to you? You mentioned the knocking on the door of a suspect after a, a crime. Mm-hmm. That was a strategy they used. But even that, you know, was was problematic for them. And it it wasn't always as foolproof as it might appear. And they, they took that in consideration. And many of the suspects that were cleared that way, we went back and recleared as well. Because uh, the way the offender was operating, there was a significant amount of time due to the terror that he was... Uh, forcing on these people on scene that many times they would not immediately get up and call the authorities. They were tied up. They were bound uh, ankle and arm and leg. So we don't know how, how much time did elapse. It, it could have been 30 minutes. It could have been 40 minutes. We, we just don't know how long they can give an estimate. But, you know, when you're in that situation, I think that the time estimation probably for the victims became difficult. And so there's always the possibility that you know, maybe your your offender is uh, smart enough that he comes back home if he sees any kind of presence that's that's foreign to him. Maybe he accesses the house a different way or, right. you know, might have been able to answer the door by the time the units arrived. So they were pretty uh, I know the reports, they were pretty honest about it when they when they didn't feel like they had a real good you know, handle on it. In other words, that maybe the reporting party didn't give them the info and uh, time or whatever, they would note that in the report and kind of let it be known that, hey, this guy was home, but we're not real confident that this is a, an adequate clear. And if we get another one, we should recheck this guy again. So 
a lot of those guys we rechecked uh, in the modern era. Many of them were cleared uh, via DNA and other other means. And and so far, all the clears they did back then have held up. But it doesn't mean that, you know, everything that we haven't been able to, of course, clear everybody at this point. Right. But let's move to attack number 50 in Danville in 1979, because that's really the first case where everything goes wrong for the offender. Uh, to recap, husband and wife are aware of the looming threat um, and had agreed upon a plan of action should they get visited by the East Area Rapist. The husband, who was a light sleeper, woke to see a man in the process of putting a mask over his face standing at the dresser. He jumps out of bed, starts confronting the attacker, it wakes up his wife, who subsequently runs out of the room in the house. The offender, obviously, wisely from his perspective, decides to bail at that point before law enforcement could get there. The fact that it took 50 attacks, really, for it to go that wrong on him, what do you think this did to the offender? Well, I think his uh, his level of edginess, if you will, and, and being wary on these crime scenes goes up a bit over some of these because of the seriousness of the offenses he's committed and probably a, a realistic assessment that eventually everybody's luck runs out. So even though he's confident and bold, in what he does and, you know, in, in, in the fashion of many people that have psychopathic uh, traits, he's uh, really thriving on this danger and this this level. And we see this expressed on case after case after case. And I would think, though, that that incident, again, is another example of he just doesn't know what the person uh, saw. And, you know, whether or not he had maybe had a, an, a, some kind of uh, interaction or something uh, even minor, I believe that he probably could not himself be convinced that the man in the home had not seen him prior to putting the mask on because he's basically donning the mask at the time that he is seen. But there is that little bit of lag time where maybe it's a second or two when your mask is not on the on the face. So. We know that the witness was able to to complete a composite sketch, and that sketch is that of a mass defender. So that's what he saw. But it it does have some some striking details to where one would have to believe that that if the mask had not been on the offender, that the guy would have had a pretty good look at him. So probably this was a scare for him because I think that he couldn't be convinced, and in his mania, probably just was paranoid that maybe he had been seen. And just decided to just change his entire latitude, and that sent him to Southern California. Now, it's interesting to note that first attack in Southern California, attack number 51, it also went wrong. Um, This was October of 79. At this point, the offender successfully made entry, uh, you know, separated the husband and wife. They're both tied up. But the wife overhears the offender repeating to himself, I've got to kill him. I've got to kill him. And so the wife, realizing she's you know, probably going to die anyway, that it, it, it can't hurt to make a run for it. So she does, runs outside, screaming for help. The offender runs out after her, uh, which gives the husband a chance to run out the back door and also scream for help. So now he's, you know, he's clearly lost control of the situation. He bails once again. That's two in a row now. Um, and I'm wondering, from your perspective, did the fact that he lost control in the back-to-back attacks accelerate his desire to kill? Yeah, I think that that, uh, that definitely would have an effect on him. This is a guy who is a bold psychopath, who has uh, a mindset that that people need to do what he wants them to do. On these scenes, he is operating in a very mission-driven uh, approach with a, a script that he wants 
the individuals that are in this house with him to play their part, which is essentially shut up, shut up, which is what he always would tell them. So he asks questions for his own satisfaction and his own enjoyment or for the terror of it. But he really doesn't want to hear from these victims in, uh, in any meaningful way on scene. And I think that having these two back-to-back fails is going to deeply affect his psyche. And it is going to make him more prone to violence. Um, moving up to uh, Santa Barbara, like you were talking about, you've got the Danville fail. Now you've got this Santa Barbara incident where... You know, he's changed latitudes now, and now he's someplace where you get too much further and you're going to have to move in order to start committing crimes uh, in another area. So he can still access Southern California from from NorCal, but when he's down there, he doesn't want to be linked to the NorCal series. He knows that whatever he is saying, whatever he's doing on scene, whatever's being reported about his behavior, and of course, some of the signature things that... um, I won't go into here, but it's been discussed uh, in other other ways, the types of things uh, that he did and the uh, the actual uh, sex assault itself. He can't stop himself. He's got to do this or he's not going to enjoy himself. And so I think he's kind of made the calculation that uh, the living witnesses are his undoing. The living witnesses are what right. are helping identify him as the East Area Rapist. And so he wants to be an unrecognized predator down there. He wants to do what he wants to do, but not necessarily be linked. He doesn't want that manhunt moving south. And so I think he makes a decision that he's going to dispatch these couples. But again, his his kill with the Maggiores, the potential and I think likely shooting of uh, Rodney Miller being related to this, those incidents that occurred were definitely reactive kills. They were, in his mind at least, they were uh, brought upon by a pursuit or by somebody that was confronting him. He did very poorly when males confronted him. That's a tradition with this guy. Almost defensive from his point. From his perspective, I would agree. There's a rationale for it. Uh, whether he cares or not about the the you know moral nature of it, I seriously doubt. But re- regardless, he felt pushed in a corner. He did what in his mind he felt was warranted. And the Manning-Offerman attack really wasn't a successful attack either, correct? There was no sexual assault Offerman was able to get free. And, and so th- that might have been a third attack in a row that things didn't go as planned for him. Yeah, and uh, absolutely. So you really got three fails in a row. But I think that, you know, with the, the second fail, which would be, you know, the first attack in Goleta, he's probably working himself up, but he's doing it audibly, which was this guy's pattern. He, um, he talked to himself, he muttered, uh, you know, he had some some strange behavior on scene. Some of it might have been a put on, but a lot of it was, uh, I think, legitimately part of his uh, his strange uh, psyche. And this couple realized, as you pointed out, that, uh, hey, you know, there's really nothing to lose here. This guy's going to kill us. And um, he's working himself up to it. It didn't work out. Uh, he's probably by by the end of that. Any provocation is all it's going to take, even though I personally believe he intended to kill uh, Offerman and Manning. I believe he intended to do that from when he first went in. But Offerman was able to break his bounds, fortunately, but then uh, he used that same kind of method, you know, methodology in his head that he'll do what he has to do to get out. And he ends up uh, uh, killing them both and fleeing. All right, Ken, last question. Do you believe this case is solvable? Yeah, absolutely. We have the guy's DNA. So alive or even dead, if we get the right piece of information or we're able to uncover uh, the right piece of information from either the original case files uh, or the uh, the other things that we're examining, uh, suspects from that era, 
Yes, uh, it can be solved. My hope is that that he's alive and could still face justice on these uh, cases. There's a lot of questions that a lot of investigators have for him. And uh, I don't believe that the that the crimes that we've associated with him are the ex, are the extent of his uh, his crimes. I think he's probably done other things and has become more even more careful about what he does. But I think that that they it can be solved. And, you know, we're committed to that here. It's been a long time, I do believe. And I've said this on other other forums, but um, I hate to use a football metaphor, but it's like the the two minute drill of the fourth quarter here. We're running a a quick offense. We're trying to, to get every iron in the fire that we can. Different agencies have different pieces of this puzzle, uh, not just in terms of the reports and the the behaviors, but, you know, Southern California has their DNA. So they're, they're, they've got DNA stuff. We've got the old reports from probably the, the starting of this series, maybe a, a pre-EAR uh, series type uh, of behavior. And hopefully at some point we're going to see the mistake that he made or mistakes that he made and be able to exploit those and figure out exactly who he is. We've put some things out that might be considered long shots, but again, if there's one-tenth of 1% chance that we're going to gain something from doing that, uh, I really see no downside to it 40-plus years later. You might as well. Absolutely. Ken, thank you again for being part of the series and for all the work and energy you've put into this case. Um, We will have you back at the end of this show after Part 5 to discuss this new set of crimes you found and believe are connected to the Golden State Killer series. And we'd just love to pick your brain on the many theories uh, we're exploring in that episode. So, uh, again, thank you and can't wait to have you back. All right. Thank you. Thanks again to Todd Lindsay and to Detective Sergeant Ken Clark. If you have information about the Golden State Killer, you can call the FBI at 1-800-CALL-FBI. That's 1-800-225-5324. Or submit a tip online at tips.fbi.gov. And don't miss part two of the Unmasking a Killer documentary on HLN on Sunday night, March 25th at 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific. The episode explores the methods, patterns, and signature calling card of the Golden State Killer, along with the process law enforcement used to link all of his crimes. And of course, we'll be following up the TV episode with a new podcast episode featuring Contra Costa County District Attorney Investigator Paul Holes. He'll give us more insight into the Golden State Killer's MO and methods. He'll walk us through the various composite sketches of the offender and talk to us about phenotyping and how it relates to the case of the Golden State Killer. So check out the documentary on HLN on Sunday night and then listen to the podcast on Monday. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts and please leave us a five-star rating and review while you're there. Thank you so much for listening. See you next time.